the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. When um, Jorge Bergoglio became the Pope, he took the name Francis. The first Jesuit ever to be elected the Pope, the first one ever to take the name Francis. But he then did what all of his papal predecessors did. He walks out onto the balcony of the papal residence and greets a throng of happy Catholics. There they are, all cheering him. What he did was customary. What he said was unusual. I went back and watched the video this week to remind myself, to refresh my memory of what it was like. And I didn't remember how uncomfortable he seemed as he stood there. He was visibly uncomfortable with all this adoration, all the clapping, being the center of attention. He clearly didn't like it at all. And here's what he leads with. He says, brothers and sisters, good evening. You all know that the duty of the conclave was to give a bishop to Rome. Notice he didn't say a pope to the world, but a bishop to Rome. He goes on to say, it seems that my brother cardinals have come almost to the ends of the earth to get him. But here we are. In other words, the least qualified person in the world has been elected. I just found that humility refreshing. Um, but what he goes on to say was equally unprecedented. What he went on to do, he, he says to the, to the people there, I wish to give you a blessing. But before I bless you, I want to ask a favor. Will you pray for me? And he bows his head and says in silence, will you pray for me? And with his head bowed before these people, remains in silence for, for a minute or so while they had opportunity to pray. He asked people on the next day, this first day is of the Pope, will you pray for me? On the second or third day, public announcement, will you pray for me? He was flying back from Argentina a fortnight later. Reporters on a plane says, you know, everywhere you go, you ask people to pray for you. I mean, you're the Pope. <laughs> Isn't it your job to pray for others? Why are you constantly asking for prayer? And here's what he said. I feel I have many weaknesses and problems. I am a sinner, too. Wow. I mean, that's mind-blowing. Here he is, the Pope, and he's saying, i got all these problems and weaknesses, and I need your prayers. It's the way we Anglicans pray every day. We follow too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We've offended against your holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done, and we have done those things which we ought not to have done. And there is no health in us. The Sunday uh, Eucharist goes like, you know, you how it will say it in just a minute. We have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We're truly sorry and we humbly repent. We know that we are sinners. The Pope knows that he's a sinner. If you're on the fence, unsure whether I know this about me or not, I know that I am a sinner. And I know that you know that you too are a sinner. We have all failed. We are all going to fail. It has happened in our past. It is certain about our future. We are like Francis. We have many weaknesses and failures. 
But knowing that we have sinned, knowing that we are going to sin, does not mean that we have an excuse to sin. It does not follow logically that just because we know that it has happened and it is going to happen, that it is okay for it to happen. It's sort of like speeding in your car. You have driven above the speed limit before. You are going to do it again. But it is not excusable just to plan to go out and drive too fast. Sin is a violation of a known commandment of God. It is it is doing or not doing what we know that we are to do or failing to do what we should do. It is a violation of God's moral law. And it brings with it a certainty of guilt. Whenever we do what we know we should not do or don't do what we know we should do, there is guilt that comes with it. It's an awareness. We know that we have failed, isn't there? Uh, in um in St. Augustine's uh, book, Confessions, he goes through and details many of his own moral failures. But there's something about sin that also is conflicting. Because even while we know we do it and it brings great guilt, there's also something that brings a bit of delight. There's pleasure. And in Augustine's book, Confessions, he talks about this time when he was a teenager. He and his friends were out, there's a gang of them. Um, they even sort of have some name for themselves, like um, the miscreants or the ne'er-do-wells or something like that. I can't remember what they were called. Um, but they're out and they're playing sports in the street and whatever. And, and then their evening is coming on and one of the friends sees this pear tree. It's on the property adjacent to the, the, the property that Augustine lives in. And one of the young men say, hey, let's go and grab some pears. And so a group of them go over there and they take this little pear tree and there's a dozen of these young men or so and they begin to shake the pear tree until all these ripe pears just begin falling out of the tree and onto the ground. By the dozens. They pick them up and Augustine says nobody even hardly takes a bite out of any of them. Instead, they take them over to the hog pen and begin throwing them into the hog pen for the hogs to have. And not because they cared about the hogs either. Here's what Augustine later wrote about this. Um, He says, stealing the pears pleased us all because it was forbidden. It was a foul thing and I loved it. I loved my own undoing. I loved my error. Not for that for which I erred, but for the error itself. You hear what he's saying? He's saying, I went and I did this thing. I don't even like pears. And we stole pears. And I loved the stealing of the pears. I loved doing that because I know I knew it was wrong. And that's the thing about sin, about violating God's moral law. It is itself at once, rather, both guilt-inducing and pleasure-inducing. It is both a rush and disgusting. It makes us ashamed and yet enchanted. And this is why it's so hard to extricate ourselves from sinful behavior. Because it has a pull on us. It, it, it brings us in. There's something about it that's pleasant. Even though there's something about it that's reviling. And so all the lessons today sort of deal with our response to moral behavior. They're all dealing with this issue of of sin and righteousness. 
I kind of want to look at each of them just a, a little bit instead of really uh, uh, you know, going through one of them. And the first one is from Ezekiel. Ezekiel is a preacher in ancient Israel. In, he lives in the city of Jerusalem. And it's a very difficult time. During Ezekiel's lifetime, there have been many uh, preachers in, in Jerusalem, in Israel, and they have all tried to, um, to rattle the cage of the people and, and warn them that, that there had been this, this just growing moral laxity throughout the culture and that people were, you know, just rampant in sinful behavior, rejecting the covenant of God. And Ezekiel was in a long line of these. But every prophet that came along, the people wouldn't listen to him. Some of them they physically beat. Some of them they actually murdered. And Ezekiel has this job now. And I don't know about you, but nobody wants that job, right? Nobody wants the job of going to people who don't want to listen to you and telling them what they don't want to hear. But this is what he had to do. And so God's word to Ezekiel in chapter 33 is his word to him as a prophet, as a preacher of righteousness. And he has this, um, it gives him this sort of illustration, and it goes like this. Imagine there's a walled city. And the walled city puts up on top of the wall a guard, a lookout. The lookout's job is to look out for oncoming, you know, foes. Oh, wow, here's an invading army on the way. And the lookout's job is to turn around and yell down into the city, look, there's an army coming. Blow the horn, you know, whatever. There's, whatever the warning is, the lookout's job is to be the one who, who sounds the alarm. And if he sounds the alarm and everybody says, ah, oh, yeah, it's fine. You know, like you did in high school when the, when the fire alarm went off and nobody even bothers to get up, right? You know, like, oh, uh, not a fire. You know, this is what's going on. God says to Ezekiel, if the watchman blows the horn and no one pays attention and the invading army comes in and destroys everybody, you know what? Guess whose fault it is? It's the fault of the person who didn't listen. On the contrary, Imagine the city puts a watchman up on the, on the wall. The watchman has a horn. He's looking out. He sees the invading army coming, but he doesn't blow the horn. He never sounds the warning. And the invading army comes in and destroys everybody. Whose fault is it then? Why, it's the watchman. The watchman had the opportunity. Saw the, he saw the threat. He failed to, to sound the alarm. It's his fault. God's word to Ezekiel, you are the watchman. You're the guy up on the, on the wall. You're looking out. You see the threat. And the threat is the laxity toward moral issues. The refusal to take God and God's law seriously. You're the watchman. Blow the horn. And if nobody listens, that's not your concern. St. Paul is the watchman in the New Testament epistle. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. He goes on and on, right? Don't use your words to hurt people. Don't return evil for evil. Bless those who persecute you. So on. The third one is Jesus with the disciples looking forward to life in community together. And here's what Jesus says. If your brother or sister sins against you, go and tell them their fault. Between you and them alone. If they listen to you, you have gained your sister or brother. 
But the very oldest copies, the most close to the original copies of Matthew's gospel, do not have that phrase against you. If a brother or sister sins, not against you. If a brother or sister sins, go to them. And the word is to reason with them. Go reason with them. Go talk to them. Now, it's important that we remember that sin is a serious issue. It's a moral law issue. I mean, we're talking about theft and adultery. We're talking about extortion or violence. We're talking about greed and idolatry. We're not talking about wearing white after Labor Day. Right? We're not talking about, you know, what kind of car a person drives or what sort of bicycle they ride. We're not talking about matters of fashion or, you know, um, what the uh, old German word adiaphora, you know, matter that, that, that don't, uh, the, the, actually it goes back further than German, uh, Greek, but uh, that Luther used, matters of indifference. We're not talking about those sorts of things, what kind of music a person likes and so on. We're talking about moral issues. Jesus says when you see a person who's sinning against themselves, really, a person involved in moral issues, go talk to them. Shouldn't they already know? I mean, shouldn't they already know? A person should know that they shouldn't cheat on their spouse, right? A person should know that it's improper to steal from their company. A person should know that it's wrong to intentionally commit perjury in a trial. People know that stuff, right? Right? (laughs) Right? Yes, of course they do. Of course they know this stuff. But that's the issue with sinful behavior. It's, it's infectious. It's addicting. And it's very difficult to extricate oneself from it. So Jesus says, watch out for one another. Go to that person. Reason with them. When you see them caught in something that's, that's a, a moral issue, go. Be a watchman for that person. And somebody else should be a watchman for you. Not to embarrass somebody not to judge somebody publicly, not to do any sort of reputation damage, but to do the exact opposite, to protect them, to shield them, to help them to be freed from the, the, the damage that sin brings into our lives. Because we should think of sin like this. It is to the soul what cancer is to the body. It's damaging. It's harmful. It is to um, it is to one's soul what the tragedy is to the play. That heartbreaking, heart-wrenching moment. It's deadly. And we need one another's help to preserve our own souls. It's about rescue, not punishment. It's about saving one another, not embarrassing or humiliating one another. Well, why should we take moral behavior so seriously? Is it just about, you know, arbitrary rules, you know, that that God is just a great killjoy in the sky who just wants to ruin all of our fun? No. No, because everyone knows that the momentary delight of sinful behavior is itself ruinous. Stealing pears might have been fun for Augustine, but when he was sitting in jail, he'd been regretting it. And even after that, the guilt that comes with with theft, the guilt that comes with adultery, the guilt that comes with idolatry is destructive inwardly to our our psyche and to our well-being. 
Real joy comes from goodness. Real delight comes from giving, not taking. Real life comes from righteousness. It was in the psalm, wasn't it? Behold, my delight is in your precepts. Revive, bring me life again in your righteousness. Because righteousness is life. We should take moral issues seriously because they're for our own good. We have a mercenary intent in doing what's right in the world. It's for our own good. And the church's job is not to be responsible for the moral behavior of the world. We're not to go out and point out the errors of people outside of the church, but to look out after one another inside the church. Here's the fact. We're going to fail. You have failed. I have failed in the past. You and I are going to fail in the future. We are going to lash out at someone in anger. We're going to let our gaze light upon that beautiful woman or good-looking guy way longer than appreciation for beauty should um, exist. We are going to want something that doesn't belong to us. And we're going to deeply covet that thing. But it doesn't mean that we get to excuse it. Not now or ever. Uh, The 18th century uh, clergyman John Wesley, he was an Anglican clergyman, He was the 15th child of Samuel and Susanna Wesley. The 15th child out of 19. His younger brother Charles was the 18th of 19 children. Charles Wesley, equally famous, wrote over 6,000 hymns, many of them that you you will know from from Christmas and Easter and so on. Um, Famous people, uh, born in the 18th and lived in the 18th century. Their father was also a clergyman. He was the rector of the Anglican Church in Epworth. And because he had 19 kids, he was constantly in debt. He was so far in debt, in the 18th century, he often found himself in debtor's prison because he couldn't pay his bills, which left his wife Susanna to care for these score of children. And she um, she must have been a brilliant woman because... While she seemed to manage to run even the parish, she taught her children how to read and to write, how to do mathematics. She taught them poetry and history. She taught them Greek and Latin. John Wesley could read Greek and Latin before he was 10 years old. She was a brilliant woman. But she also taught her children about the things of God. She was a pious woman. And she was as much responsible for her son's advancing in ministry, even more so than her husband. But here's what she taught them about doing what is right and avoiding what is wrong. This was recorded by John Wesley. Here's what his mother taught him. Whatever weakens your reason, whatever impairs the tenderness of your conscience, obscures your sense of God, takes the relish off of spiritual things, whatever increases the authority of your body over your mind, that thing is sin to you, however innocent it may seem of itself. Keep watch over your soul. Keep watch over the souls of your sisters and brothers. Because we all know that we're weak. We all know that we have many failures. And we'll never make it through this world alone. Amen.